coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. The American dream is a phrase that's recognized and aspired to the world over. It incorporates a set of ideals which symbolizes prosperity and success through hard work, a strong family environment, and an opportunity to provide our children with a good education, a great set of values, and a great career going forward. Throughout our history, millions of immigrants have come to these shores in order to pursue the American dream for a better way of life. You'd be forgiven for thinking that once you've achieved this status, that life is now everything it's meant to be. But what if this dream becomes a reality, and then this reality becomes a nightmare? What if the concept of the American dream is flawed because it encourages us to achieve success, but does not teach us how to overcome failure? What if you're so blinded by the pursuit of doing good for your loved ones that you ignore the evil that lurks around you? One of those evils could be a child's drug addiction. It came as a great surprise to me when I explored the backgrounds of people recovering from addiction. They seem to come from the most normal households that symbolize the American dream. I feel for these parents who work hard and mean well for their children and then see their hopes and aspirations for their kids crushed right in front of their own eyes. When faced with the reality of addiction, some parents become paralyzed because they never thought it could happen to them. They couldn't understand how their children could get sucked into this dark hole, especially when they've worked so hard to provide the best they could. Some of them choose not to believe it even. Our guest today is a young man who could be just like your son, brother or friend. He comes from a middle-class family with strong religious and moral values. He started on drugs from the tender age of 12 and is now recovering from addiction. He's going to share his fascinating, heartfelt, yet inspiring story of his journey with drugs. And in order to protect his identity, I'm going to call him John. But the star of today's show is again the story itself. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, good afternoon, Pip. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Trying my uh, trying my best to, to live the American dream, as I've just said. So oh. glad to be here. Well, before we get started, how old are you now and what are you recovering from? Sure. I am 24 years old uh, currently, and I am, I, I'm recovering from my, my, my drug of choice is opiates, uh, prescription medication. Um, but, you know, I, I really I consider myself kind of a, uh, kind of a, a garbage can where I, I, um, you know, I'm recovering from really anything on the table, everything from alcohol to prescription medication to, to marijuana to, um, to other substances as well, just really anything I could get my hands on. So give us a picture of your background. Tell us a bit about your family and, and where you come from. Sure, sure. And um, I think you did a, an excellent job um, just touching on it in, in, in your introduction. I, uh, you know, I, I was raised in a, um, was raised in a strong family. Uh, you, you know, when I say strong, um, uh, I had all the values of support, care, empathy. Um, you know, I, I, I had a strong message from a childhood that I had parents that were available for me. We, um, you know, I, growing up, I ate dinner with my family at the dinner table every night. It was, uh, it was to be expected, you know, at, at that age, it wasn't, it wasn't something I was, um, you know, particularly, particularly looking forward to, but, um, it gave me a, a strong sense of assurity in my family. A lot um, of families these days have trouble doing that. Absolutely. Just because everyone's busy, but you, your, your family managed to do that. Yeah, yeah, and, and despite the uh, you know the, the busyness in my family, it was just always this this priority to come together, be available for each other. And what did mom and dad do for a living? 
Sure. Um, ironically, my parents are social workers, and they work in the school system. So they, my parents have devoted their lives to, to working with children in need and, and families in need. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it was originally what they planned to have that creep into their own household, but, you know, that was definitely the case. And what about your siblings? Sure. I have a younger sister. Uh, my sister um, is the musician, the creative one of our family. She's, she's currently in school for... Uh, for music performance and education, um, and is just just thriving. You know, uh, my sister, no no problems with substance use. Uh, just really has dedicated herself to to her passion of music, and and really took on those those family values that that we had from an early age. And what are these family values? Sure. Um, you know, I I would say our our values they were really based they were based upon uh, the, our, our our faith. Um, I was raised in the Methodist Church, so. You know, I, I was taught strong morals of, um, uh, you know, to treat your neighbor as yourself, uh, you know, no, to not lie, cheat, steal, to put, put work and effort forth for the things that you want, that nothing comes, nothing comes easy, nothing comes cheap. Um, you know, but like I mentioned, I think the biggest thing was a, a message and a value that, that family is always there for you and support is always available. So not to lie, cheat, and steal. Yeah. And all of these things would do a U-turn. Yeah, I you know I I it's it's funny in the the course of addiction and you know just what a, addiction did to me it really really warped those values on you know to the complete opposite of what they uh, you know com- complete opposite as they were taught to me. So a very nurturing background and upbringing. What were you like as a kid then? Sure, I um <laughs> I was a uh, I was a, a restless kid. Um, I. I, I had I had trouble keeping my concentration on any one thing. Um, you know, I I remember some of my earliest memories and it was just the the stories uh, reiterated back to me from my parents was uh, just a lot of in instances where I couldn't quite follow the directions or stay in tow with what people asked of me. Um, I was uh, I, I wasn't able to sit down in classrooms. I remember I think being suspended from kindergarten or at least called down to the principal's office for for throwing cupcakes at other students you know and I just had this really difficult time latching on to anything that I didn't find interesting um at the same time though when there was anything that I took a passion to um you know at that time it being music it being sports I would I would really do it almost obsessively you know just just to a point of kind of driving myself mad even at a young age and you'd excel in it, and I would, I would, I and and um, you know, excelling was an interesting thing because I um, for the things that I wanted to succeed in, I I craved it, I needed it, I couldn't be, I I I had some notion in my head that I I just couldn't be mediocre at anything, and um, the problem when I was, I would shut down if I couldn't be the best at it, if I couldn't be the brightest, um, I didn't want to do it because I I. And this is all in retrospect, but I, I just didn't want to look weak or inept way. But, you know, aren't all kids restless? I mean, were you suffering from something a little more abnormal? Sure. Um, you know, uh, for myself, I, you know, I, I always felt that I couldn't relate to others, um, you know, and, and what was, uh, you know, what was told to my parents and, um, you know, when when the school system started to notice my behavior, they they kind of identified that I I really had some ADHD behaviors, and and that being you know attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, I just 
you know, and it just went right along with those behaviors of not being able to stay still, not being able to concentrate, not being able to, you know, really be engaged in what I was doing. You know, so that really, uh, you know, I think by by my first year of kindergarten became present. And, um, you know, one of my, uh, I, I actually repeated my kindergarten year, and I think that was part of the factor was I, I couldn't, Retain the information I needed to to start moving forward in school, even though I was even though I was a, a bright kid. So, did you seek professional help for that? I did. You know, my my parents, being social workers, uh, it, it has always been their their model to to reach out for help, um, to reach out for professional help. And I, you know, I, that was when I started to see psychiatrists. Um, you know, at at some point in my youth, they began to try. Um, you know. Uh, Stimulant medication to to help with the to help with the ADHD. Um, you know, and I remember I remember I, I kind of learned a few lessons from that. I, I remember learning if I if I take something, it, it makes me feel different. Um, but moreover, I, I remember um, you know I I didn't particularly like it. Uh, I just I, I liked kind of feeling unhinged. I, I liked the the um, you know kind of uh, obsessiveness that I had, um, even though it. The, the older I got, the more it started to, you know, really separate me from, from other people. But did your parents ever try? Were they big believers in, in heavy discipline? Um, that's interesting. I, you know, I, when it comes to my parents' discipline, I, I think they took a, 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 um, a very healthy approach. Uh, I remember as, you know, growing up, my, my discipline was writing assignments um you know if i if i broke a rule or i uh disobeyed them in some in, in some respect i would be my punishment would be to to write the behavior i did wrong uh you know how i felt about what i did and then a letter of apology so i i was uh they, they definitely it definitely pay, played into their work as social workers and and realizing the importance of me figuring out the lessons behind the way i behaved and how did you feel? I mean, was it something you would sort of um, stay away from, or, or was it something you'd weigh when you're about to do something and say, "Well, at, at, at the very most, I'm just going to have to write a few paragraphs." A few paragraphs. You know, I I think that was the 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 age that I really started to learn that um I can really do whatever I want as long as I can as long as I can either get away with it and not get caught, or if I get caught um display enough uh, regret so that, that people think I'm sincere and changing, if that makes sense. I, I started to kind of learn my, my role as a, uh, you know, kind of a con artist to, to, to really lessen my, my punishments, especially from my parents. So when did you start getting interested with drugs? Drugs. You know, it, uh, it's funny. I, um, I had this fascination with drugs, you know, and I, and I could speculate that it was from um, the media, and you know, I definitely had had music. Um, I, I was listening to rap music at the time, and 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 that had a lot of references to drug use. Uh, I, you know, so I'm sure I had some influence from that. But but I just remember from a young you know young age, 10, 11 years old, just being fascinated by by drugs and alcohol. Let me ask you something. You use the words, and and what's popped out from your answer is fascination, media, and music. What was the fascination? Let's ask, let's talk about that first. Sure, you know I saw I, I saw that drugs and alcohol allowed people a sense of freedom, um, and I saw that in the media. I saw that in music, uh, and I saw it uh, every now and then in culture. Uh, you know, just in my in my environment. 
But um, I, I was fascinated with the idea that you could take something and not have to feel the way that you normally feel felt. Um, and for me, that was that was a big fascination because I, you know, as I said, I, I really, I, I didn't like I didn't like being in my own skin. I just I just felt uncomfortable. It, you know, it just felt like something that is you know, if I had the opportunity to get away from it, I you know I, I would take that opportunity at any moment. So. So like rap music with its lyrics glorified drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And what about the media? Which which part of the media? What were you reading or looking at that sort of glorified it? That's a good question. Um, I I remember uh, I remember um, I listened to a lot of rap music, but I would uh, I, I I remember um, actually doing a lot of reading. Um, I, I was I was reading a lot. I would search through my library, even at the public schools, you know, in, in elementary and middle school, for any books that um, you know that. That, that referenced uh, drugs or alcohol, and you know it's not the it's not the easiest thing to find in a library, but uh, but I, I remember just um you know sifting through the aisles for you know the only thing that I wanted to read I, I needed it to discuss those topics. Did you ever feel that if I did drugs I'd be hanging around with the so-called cool group of the school? Hmm. You know, um, were you on your own when you were doing the research, or were you with a bunch of friends? Yeah. You know, I, I think it was more of a feeling of, um, you know, if, if I start using drugs and alcohol, I, I won't care who I'm hanging around with. Uh, you know, because at that age, at, at 11 or 12, um, I, I really didn't have any peers, even in, in my school, that were using drugs or alcohol. Um, mm. I will say that did apply for, you know, I had some, I had some older friends in my neighborhood, um, you know, 14, 15, you know, a couple years older than me that, you know, I saw them drink and I, and I saw the, the freedom they had to, to, you know, to, to be able to, to stay out late and to drive and, and that, uh, you know, definitely um, when it came to the, the people that I had in my neighborhood, I, I idolized them and I, I wanted to be a part of that. Now, at that age, was it easier to get alcohol or was it easier to get drugs? Mm. That age, uh, you know, I would say it was easier to get drugs. Um, and, and, and I don't think that was the case for, um, you know, everyone in my peer group, but uh you know, for me and the people that I, I push myself to associate with, it, it was uh, it was a little easier to find drugs than it was to to find somebody you know over 21 that, to buy us alcohol. So. It seems like for the alcohol you need ID. Yeah, and for the drugs you just or, need cash. Yeah, or just some cash and some good uh, kind of persuasive skills to get someone to get it for you. Now, what was your first experience with drugs? Where were you? What did you have? Give us a, a uh, indication. Sure. Um, my, my first experience with drugs, I was actually with, uh, with my cousins up in Maine, and, um, and, and these were the, my cousins were a couple years older than me, and there definitely was a big part of, uh, you know, that I idolized these guys, that I wanted to be a part of what was going on. But there was also that big part where I just wa- I wanted to feel something. I wanted to feel different in any way that I could. Um, so that was my first experience drinking and using, and, and it, it failed miserably. It didn't work. I didn't feel anything. I didn't have any effect. Well, what did you have? Um, I had uh, my first time I, I, I uh, stood in a circle with all the friends and, and probably, um, you know, probably had seven to ten hits of marijuana, um, you know, smoking out, of, smoking out of joints. And then I also had, you know, I had a beer and a half that night. I think that was my, my first experience with drinking. And you didn't feel anything? I felt nothing. Um, you know, what I did feel, though, I remember when we were drinking those beers and I looked at my cousins and, and they all had three beers and I had, you know, one and, you know, a little left over and, and thinking that um, this wasn't enough, you know, that 
that that if if they were to give up one of their beers, maybe this would work. But you know, my my first experience with drinking, my my thinking was, I need more of this. I I, I need to get my hands on more. So what I don't get, you didn't get caught. Yeah. Yep. No, didn't get caught. No consequences. But no, what but you've had have, drinks. You've you smoked marijuana. There's a certain odor. Yeah. You know, in that time, um, you know, that was one of the benefits to to hanging out with, um, you know, my cousins who were a little older than me. Uh, we were able to, you know, kind of hide downstairs in the basement, uh, just up in Maine. So, yeah, the the big basements downstairs, and we were able to hang out down there. It was, you know, it was late at night, so we had no, uh, we were able to to get away with it that night. So you timed everything and just made sure the art of not getting caught. Absolutely. But what did happen was, uh, you know, the the day I got back from Maine, I I uh, I, I tried again. I, I didn't give up, and I and I I you know bought some bought some marijuana from a friend from you know somebody my age, and in that time when when I when I when I smoked marijuana that time, uh, I had I felt the effects. I felt the euphoria. I felt for me, and this has always been my experience with drugs and alcohol. I, I felt serenity. I felt peace, and I remember thinking that first time. Uh, you know, this stuff cost me $5 today. If I can get my hands on $5 a day, that's $35 a week, and I can feel like this every single day, and, and that's how I'm going to make it through life. And how old were you then? I was uh, 13 years old. So how do you fund $35 a week? Well, at first it didn't work because I, uh, the, when, I, when I went back to school with the, the only $20 that I had from my allowance, I, uh, I ended up getting arrested for... Uh, for possession of marijuana, um, one of the first times that I bought it, um, you know, so I I learned the art of uh, you know getting people off my back, and I made all the apologies, and I um, I went through the probation, you know. But after that, at you know at age 14 and 15, when my drinking and, and marijuana use started to pick up again, you know, for me funding it meant meant stealing, uh, it meant stealing from my parents. Um, when I started to work in ice cream shops and uh, Golf courses. It meant stealing from the cash register, stealing from uh, stealing from my friends. So, so you know those those principles we talked about with you know honesty, no no lying, no cheating, no stealing. Those started to go right out the window to to fund my my drug use. But you know, one thing that really sort of hits me hard is it seems so easy to get access to this in school. I mean, you're telling me like you came back from Maine, it didn't hit you, so you thought you'd just go to school and, and, and get your supply there. I mean, how does it work? Are, are there other are are students sort of going around and, and, and trying to um, get new customers? I mean, how does this work? Sure. Um, you know, for me, uh, I, I think it's really something you have to sit, you know, as, as, a, as a student that age, I had to seek out those people. Um, if you were to ask my sister who never used drugs and al- alcohol, she would have no idea that people were, were selling drugs at school. Uh, you know, for me, it meant finding the people that, that also used, and most of the times they would in- introduce us to, uh, to actual drug dealers that, um, you know, that, that weren't high school or middle school students. Uh, you know, drug dealers that lived in the community that we could go and start to get our, our, our fix from. So how did you find out who's selling? Sure. Uh, you know, it, it... You just can't go around asking everyone. 
Yeah, you know, I I um I had a group of friends, you know, the the group of friends that I associated with were all people, you know, who were using marijuana and drinking on a, on a regular basis. So, uh, you know, so they would have an older brother who had a friend or they would have um, you know, they would know a guy who graduated from high school the year before who who lived up the street and you know, if they could vouch for you, you know, if one of my friends could, you know, say that I was I was all right to sell to, uh, you know, I would have I would have access to these much older drug dealers at that time. Just like getting a country club membership. Absolutely. You have to know someone to get in. And then for me, you know, when you mentioned funding, at, at some point I, I just, I started, you know, probably at the age of 16, started selling drugs myself to, to support my habit. Now you were doing well at school, right? I was doing well in school up till that point. You know, I had this, this kind of... You were of, on the principal's honor roll? Yes, yeah, I was on the principal's honor roll. I was I was heavily involved in um in band and extracurricular activities. Uh, you know that, you know that I was always raised by my parents that you do well in school and you go to college. And I I had never questioned that. I I just figured that that would be my life. And um, you know, up to that point, even though I was drinking and using, I was kind of started to to live two separate lives. I had, you know, I had the, the person that I was in the classroom and at school, and then I had the person who I became once I left class and, and started to put alcohol and drugs in my system. What's it like being in the company of other drug addicts? Hmm. Oh, it is a, um, it's a weird thing. You know, the, the thing about, uh, you know, being in, in the company of other addicts is everybody's trying to con- convince themselves that it's not as bad as it really is. Um, and what I mean is that, ugh, you, you know, I, I would hang out with these people that would just, you know, you know, tell tell these these stories to themselves of, oh, I'm going to go back to school next year, or I'm going to stop, you know, do, using the heavy, you know, the heavy substances, you know, at this time, or um, you know, I'm never gonna, you know, I'm I'm never gonna um, rob somebody again or sell drugs again, and and it was all just false, uh, you know. So hanging out with drug dealers, it was a lot of a lot of deception, um, and it was a, it was very cutthroat because any time that they could use you or I could use somebody else to get access to substances, um, people were disposable. So there was no sense of camaraderie? Absolutely not. Hmm. Now, between the ages of 13 and 18, what were some of the worst things that happened? Sure, sure. Um, you know, through those years, my, my use really started to progress. Um, you know, as, as I see addiction today, I see it as a disease that, that progresses over time, that gets worse, never better. And um, you know, along with that, the consequences, uh, you know, at by 15 or 16, I was, as I mentioned, I would, I would have to steal to support myself. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm a hostile kid. I'm actively using drugs. I'm stealing, uh, I'm stealing money from my parents. I'm writing bad checks. I'm writing checks that don't have money in the accounts. Um, and, and kind of the worst when it came to my stealing is I, I started to steal from my sister, um. You know, and the worst thing about it with addiction is I would steal this money from my sister. She would turn around and tell my parents, and I would look, I'd look my family bold in the eye and say, I did not do that. You're, you're, you're trying to blame something on me that I did not do. Um, and the scary thing is that you really start to believe yourself. You know, you're really that delusional that you convince yourself that you didn't do these things. You know, in that time, too, I'm, I'm, I'm robbing other people. Did it rob your conscience, too? It does. It does. Um, you know, it, it's you, you, you get into these big justifications of, of why it's not a problem. Um, and it's just delusional. It, it makes no sense, you know, for, for my sober brain today. But 
But when you're in that situation, I, I felt completely okay with stealing sis- stealing money out of my sister's, literally her piggy bank. And, uh, and I, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel that it was wrong. And I, I really just felt kind of entitled to it. And then you were also cashing your college checks. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. That's, um, you know, that's when things really started to rev up. I, uh, I started I started using opiates. I started using a heavier substance, and and when I wouldn't use, I would go into physical withdrawal. So I would get sick. I'd have I have sweats, cramps, shakes, nausea if I wasn't able to use for a day. So one of my means to to uh, access the money, I I had this these funds for college, and um and I swiped my checkbook from my father, and you know over a you know over a two year period, I I wrote you know ten thousand plus dollars in checks. You know, I had times, I just thought of this now, I had times where I was cashing a check, a check at a bank and the bank teller would call my parents, uh, you know, say that something something doesn't seem right here. And, um, you know, my father would be on the phone knowing that I'm cashing bad checks and have to decide whether to press charges against me or not. In terms of theft, when you were doing all this could you give us an indication of the total amount you've spent over the last five years sure or between yeah, the was, ages of 13 and 18 between 13 and 18 um you know this is actually uh, actually an assignment i did while i was in treatment when i when i got clean and sober you know i i estimated that during my my drug use that that actually went up to 19 um that i uh that i spent upwards of eighty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars on drugs and alcohol and and drug and alcohol related consequences uh you know legal legal charges um uh vehicle accidents so this was a very expensive hobby yeah yeah especially for a uh, you know an 18 year old kid now did this feeling of of this emotional dissatisfaction when you were not drugged did it lead to violent behavior it did you know i um especially um especially to my family you know my my family really got the brunt of this uh you know, there was there was points in my use where um I was so volatile that uh you know I would um you know I I've put hands on my mother um I pushed her around I've you know, I've I've thrown her back against walls and and I've done the same to my sister as well uh and this was on a regular basis you know on a weekly basis I'm I'm my my mother and sister are um uh, scared for their scared for their well-being, you know, and they, I, I remember one time in specific, specifically where my, my sister and, and mother are, are hiding in the closet because I am kicking down the door and, um, and grabbing at them and pushing them and shaking them, you know, and, and it's, over, it's over the fact that my mom won't give me, you know, $20 to keep using to go, to go get high with. What about your father, huh? How was the relationship with him? Sure. Um, you know, my, my father, uh, him, I think my my father just wished that it was just a phase. Um, no, but were you engaged violently with him? Violently, you know, I I would be. Um, you know, my father was was the one who would try to come in and to protect and to you know to to get me away from my uh, my sister and mom. And we would uh, a lot of times my 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 dad would have to restrain me. He would uh, you know especially when I was younger he would he'd have to hold me down. He'd have to hold my hands behind my back and kick my feet up. Uh, there was you know multiple times where he had to call the police um, or or lock me out of the house because I was uh, you know in such a uh, just a rageful state. 
And what was your relationship with the police like? Did you ever get arrested? Sure. Um, you know, I, I actually, over my, over my using from 13 to, you know, to 19 years old, I was arrested, arrested four different times, mm -hmm. all drug-related. Um, you know, and the, definitely the, the most damaging one, uh, when I was 18, I was in a, uh, in a DUI accident. Um, I, was, I was driving into heavily intoxicated, and I, uh, I, I actually hit my friend's car and pushed him into a man on a motorcycle. So I, I was a DUI accident where I, I knocked an individual off of a, a motorcycle going at a at a high rate of speed. So when this all started coming to a head, yeah. towards the last part of the greatest depth of your uh, drug indulgence, sure. did you start getting feelings of being suicidal or committing other drastic actions? You know, at the end of my use, at you know, at 19, I, I had some made, I had made some half-hearted attempts to stop using. Uh, I would make these attempts to only smoke marijuana and to get off the harder substances. And there was a point at 19 where um, I knew in my gut that, um, you know, I was going to die an addict. That that was who I was. Um, at that point, I become, uh, I become suicidal. I, uh, you know, I and not sui I, not suicidal in the the sense that I had a plan to hurt myself. I just had no purpose or hope for living. Um, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't look people in the eye. I couldn't make it across the, the street to go to class. And then um, my my desperation for drugs was getting worse and worse. So, you know, at this point, I, I'm at a place where um, I'm contemplating uh, prostituting myself for drugs. Um, right. it, you know, it seemed like a, it seemed like a valid option. Uh, you know, I assumed I'm, I'm a straight male, but I assumed uh, um, homosexual men would, you know, be happy to, to pay me for you know, for prostitution, and, and I was completely okay with it. Um, you know, luckily, I, I was... You were that desperate that you would go against being straight Yeah. in order yeah. to fund your addiction. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I, I really, when it came back to those, you know, what addiction does for me is I, I just, I, I, I have no sense of, of self or the consequences of myself. My, my, I have no sense of regret, remorse, shame, until I, you know, until I stop using, and that's when all that stuff comes up, and that's why I need to keep using not to feel it anymore. So where do you see, when you look back in your life, where do you see the one turning point or the many turning points that made yeah. you decide to do the U-turn? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, I like to give the credit where credit's due, that um, when I got clean and sober, uh, I think one of the big turning points was my, my family, um, my family setting boundaries that needed to be set. Um, you know, my, my, my family went to, uh, to seek out support, and after that they told me, listen, we love you to death, but we're not going to watch you kill yourself. Um, you want to keep using, we're done. Paying. Do you think they could have done that earlier? You know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, think they, I think they could have, but at the same time I don't, I don't think that they, you know, they had it in them. Um, you know, addiction is so... You know, for me, my, my, my addiction just spreads to other people. It keeps other people in chaos. It, mm -hmm. it causes so much conflict. I don't think they had the ability to. No. Now, when you look back, do you regret your past? You know, um, it's, you know how, how I see it today, I, I, I don't regret any of it. Um, I, without, a, without addiction, my, my life today, I, I don't think I, I could. God, the meaning, the meaning and purpose and, and value that I pull from life today is is. But it's a very expensive way of finding out who you are. It is. It is. Forget the money. It's about, you know, the domestic violence. 
the arrests, the going against the fundamentals with which you were brought up. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a cheap toll for it. That's for sure. But mm. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I feel like without addiction, um, I would have never. I, I feel like I would have always had that sense of discontentment with who I am. Um, you know, that's always been there until I found recovery. Um, and I feel without re- addiction, I, I couldn't have found recovery, and I, I couldn't have found, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, just being able to be comfortable in my own skin. Um, so what did I, you learn about yourself? Sure. Um, you know. Coming in the coming in the recovery and you know and from addiction, what I learned is that uh, I'm not I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. Um, that that when it comes to substances, I you know when I put them in my body, I um I have no choice of what the next thing is going to be. You know, whether I get arrested, whether I'm willing to you know sell myself, you know I have no clue what will happen. You know what I learned though, um, coming into recovery is that I I really still had those values that I grew up with. Um, that I'm, that I am an honest person. That I, that I am not a cheat. You know that I'm not a thief. Um, you know that I'm not a bad person. Mm-hmm. That I'm, you know, that I'm just I'm I'm sick. I, I you know, I have a, a disease that I'm sick with. No, but you're saying you're an honest person despite having been dishonest. Yeah. So do you think what you could have learned is that you have the potential and the ability to be honest rather than be honest? Yeah. You know, I, I think that was. Uh, you know that was one of the scary things about about getting clean was i i didn't know if um i didn't know if that stuff would come back uh, i i was i was unsure if i was honest if i was a giving if i was a caring person if i was worth you know if i was worthwhile if i was worth you know if it, if it was worth living for me but um yeah that those were uh that that process of seeing that i that i am those things um you know me, definitely means a lot to me now when you went to the treatment centers hmm. How do they work? What's involved? Because normally I would think, or and and maybe some of our listeners would think that it's a detox center. Is it a detox? You know, you bring up a good point because uh, I I know even for me in addiction there was a lot of confusion with that. Um, you know, detox, uh, which I've been through, I've been through detox facilities. Um, and that was just to get the drugs and alcohol out of my system. Um, it's you know typically a couple days. It just gets me physically clean and sober. But um. But it doesn't. It's not recovery. It doesn't teach me how to live clean and sober. When I went to residential residential treatment this time, I I went to a uh, you know a, f- a facility called Turning Point of Tampa, and um, you know what that taught me was how to live clean and sober. Um, how they did that is it's it's a structured environment. So mm-hmm. I am uh, I'm I'm cooking for myself. I'm cleaning for myself. Uh, there's a lot of accountability. Um, if I sign up for a meeting or a class or an individual session. I'm expected to be there. Uh, there's a lot of support. Um, I have staff, therapists, roommates, you know, the peers in the community available for me 24/7. And what we're actually doing during the day, we're, you know, we're attending groups. We're learning about the disease concept of addiction. We're we're learning about what relapse is, what you know, how, you know, identifying triggers. Um, you know, learning how to set boundaries with the people around us, with our family. Are you kept locked in? Um, you know, the place that I went to, I wasn't. Um, I, you know, it, it's because that's dangerous. I mean, if if you're not locked in and and you get all this theory, you'd 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 be tempted to walk out for a few minutes, get a hit, and come back and say, you know what, I won't do it tomorrow. Gosh, you know, I I had times my my first couple of weeks of treatment where I w- I would sit on my hands in my apartment and just 
kind of whisper to myself, just don't get high, don't get high, don't get high. Mm. You know, and, and although a lot of people do do just that, as you shared, just, just walk out the front door, um, you know, a lot of people at that point, it's where, it's where you learn how to reach out for support, you know, to reach out for, to somebody and say, listen, man, like all I want to do is get high and I can't stop thinking about it. Will, will you help me? Will you sit with me? Because um, in the real world, there's no... You know, today in my life, I have no cages on me. I have a, a bar at every corner and, you know, drug dealers within every 10 minutes of me. And, and so I need to learn those tools of how do I, you know, how do I reach out to help um, even when I, even when I'm just craving in my gut to, you know, to keep using. Okay. I want to get to that in, in, in a minute, but uh, about temptation. Yeah. Um, but in the process, when we discussed a few days ago, you said the first principle is that you have to admit to being powerless. Yeah. Now, I, th yeah. I found that very strange because everywhere around us, uh, even Winston Churchill said, you know, destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. We're always taught that we have the power to change our lives. And yet here you're being, here your, your, your first um, fundamental rule seems to be admission to being powerless. I don't get that. It's a, and, and such a weird thing, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you, you bring up that point. Uh, you know, forever, I, I just struggled with why can't I stop using on my own? I'm an intelligent person. I come from a good family. I, I have good character. Why can't I just make myself stop? Why can't I control this? Mm. And it, then I come to treatment, and I, and I, and I um, you know, started attending, um, you know, re recovery meetings, and, uh, and the message is you're powerless. You can't, you can't stop this on, my, on your own. Um, you know, what I take from that is that, you know, when I put drugs and alcohol in my system, I have no choice of what will happen. And by myself, I can't keep myself clean and sober. But I need, I need help. I need, you know, whatever that is. For me, it's, you know, it's a power greater than myself. I need to start living by spiritual principles to tap into that part of my life. And I just need, I need others around me to know what's going on in my head so that they can, they can help be that power for me. And what's the next rule they teach you? Sure. You know, kind of the, when it comes to recovery, kind of the next principle is, you know, if I'm powerless, you know, what do I do with that? And it's, you know, it's all about finding a power. Like, I need to, you know, I need to tap into something outside of myself. Um, you know, it's not, you know, for me, it's, it's not about religion. It's just about, it's just about finding, you know, for me, it's about faith. You know, just having faith that, that there's, some, there's something bigger than me, that there's a bigger plan than me, that... You know, if I take suggestions from people who have walked through recovery, you know, if I follow their lead, then I'm going to get the same results that they got. And then after that is introspection, confession, getting forgiveness from others, serving others in the same situation. Yeah, all this it, stuff as as an addict, I don't I don't want to do. Um, I, I have yeah, it's to, almost like changing your way of life. Absolutely, you know, I. In recovery, it's like I, I have to take a look at who I am. Uh, you know, you talked a lot about, you know, just coming to find, you know, who I really am and what, what principles and morals I, I truly have. And, and that's how I found it. I was looking, at, it was looking at the good stuff, but also looking at the bad stuff, looking at the, the things that I've done in recovery, the, you know, or I'm sorry, the things I've done while, I'm, while using and the fears that I have, the, the sexual misconduct that I have, the people that I've hurt, you know, telling that. How did that, you get forgiveness from others? Sure, you know that that's the that's the trick of it. Then you know, after I look at all these all these things I've done in my life, I have to turn around and, and go and, and try to ask for forgiveness. Um, 
you know, and for me, it's it's not about saying sorry. I, I've said I'm sorry to my fa- my parents 10,000 times. I've said it to the police a thousand times. I've said it to my teachers numerous times. You know, it, it was about going to the people I've hurt and said that, you know, saying I, I have wronged you. You know, I have, in my addiction, I have I've stole from you. I've stole your time, your energy. I've physically stole your money and your property. How can I make that right? You know, will you allow me to make that right? I've had some people that say, you know, I appreciate your, you know, I appreciate you trying to talk to me, but I, I never want to see you again. And um, and for me, that's my my amends to them is to stay out of their life. Um, luckily, from you know, from my family, their their one request is to, to to stay clean and sober and to keep living the way that I'm living. You know, so every day that I stay clean and sober, it's not just about me. It's about making it right for my family and for my friends and loved ones that were there for me when I was in my addiction. Now, from the bottom of your heart, you've been clean every day for the last four years? Yep, from the bottom of my heart, every day for the last four and a half years. And that's that's everything, drugs and alcohol, no mood or mind-altering substances have gone through my body. So how do you avoid temptation? All right. You know, um, for me, it's uh, when when I got clean and sober, it, it it really was about changing the people, places, and things. Um, you know, I had to stay away from the people I used with. The you can change I, everything around you, but you can't change what's going through your mind. I, and that's the trick of it. You know, uh, today, you know what it really is is, um, you know, I can I can be having the perfect day, and out of nowhere, feel like it's a great idea to put a needle in my arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 a great idea to. To, to pick up a drink or a drug again. Um, when that obsession hits me, you know, and this is with multiple years sober, you know, that kind of thinking comes back. And, you know, when that hits me, I'm, I need to be honest. I, I need to, you know, for me, it's kind of two things. I need to reach out to my higher power. I need, I, you know, I need to tap into a power greater than myself. And then I need to ask for help. I need to get humble and call another, you know, one of my support network, one of my, you know, somebody in recovery that understands and, and say that I, you know, I... <laughs> I want to use. Okay, so you speak to someone. Well, what's the higher power? Yeah, in you know, your world, what's what's the higher power? For me, I keep it real simple. Um, you know, my my higher power is is something greater than myself that wants me to stay clean and sober. Uh, it wants me to help other people. It wants me to to be an active. Person. So, is that higher power God? Yeah, I you know I call it God just um just out of simplicity. Yeah. You know, and that's the cool thing for me is I, I found, um, you know, I found a form of spirituality where, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not religious. Um, you know, I don't attend church or anything like that, but, uh, you know, I keep it very simple. In, in the morning, I ask my higher power to keep me sober, and out of common courtesy, I, I say thank you at night. But you haven't changed your religion. You're still a Christian. You know, I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't per, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a Christian, although I, I really uh, I really value those principles of Christianity. I try to practice those in my life. But when you go into these treatment centers, you're allowed to keep your religious faith. Absolutely, absolutely, and that I think that's the beauty of of, of treatment. The beauty of recovery is that um, it doesn't matter what your higher power is, uh, you know, what denomination or or lack thereof. You know, if you're an agnostic, if you're an atheist, you know, as long as you're willing to be open-minded to the idea of of something greater than yourself, um, that it doesn't matter what it is. You know, you could be like anyone, like I mentioned in my intro. Yeah. You could be like anyone's son, brother, or friend, right? Um, what would be your advice to parents 
who are obviously interested in preventing their children from having or taking drugs? Sure, that's a great question. Um, you know, my, you know, kind of, kind of two things with it. Uh, practically, um, be be aware of what's going on. Uh, you know, look for the signs and symptoms. Look, you know, if okay. What are the signs and symptoms? Sure. Um, signs and symptoms. You know, the physical signs either either uh, you know puffy eyes, red eyes, blurry eyes. Um, you know, change in sleep patterns, change in in mood, change in behavior. Um, mm -hmm. You know change in school performance or change in, uh, you know, in your child's, uh, you know, friendship circles or uh, also um, the little things when it comes to, when it comes to money and finances uh, and, and, you know, if you have, uh, you know, quarters missing from your, your change jar and you can't account for them or, or in your liquor cabinet if you have a bottle that was always hidden in the back that's disappeared suddenly um, and just to be aware of those signs when they're, when they're present. Yeah, it just seems like you got to keep such a close watch. You know, I think the hard thing for families is um I you know, my my belief is that families are almost as as powerless over addiction as the children are and uh what I mean by that it's you know, it's not something that you can fix by yourself. You know, it's not cuz you're it's not because you're a bad parent, it's just not you you can't you didn't cause it, you can't control it and you can't cure it. You know, you need to reach out for help whatever that is for you from the school from your from your church from a from an addictions professional from the child's you know from the child's doctor just wherever you can reach out for help and support is the you know the, the first thing that I would always encourage you see the whatever you've told me I can't see anything that your parents lacked because even in their own profession they were looking after kids or young people what do you think your parents lacked in their parenting skills? You know, that's um, that's always uh, one of the toughest questions I get, and and my honest, my honest to God answer is I I don't think they lacked a single thing. You know, I think I think addiction is just you know, my my disease, my addiction was just more powerful than the love that a parent has for their child. Um, it it runs through that. They're, my parents were at no match against addiction. Um, you know, I think the best thing they did was. Once they reached out for help, that started the process of, of helping me get clean and sober. You know, but to a degree, they were just as powerless over it as I was. So once you started getting help, do things get better very quickly? You know, they do. They do. Um, you know, and, and, and that doesn't mean, you know, for me, I, I left treatment. I lived in a halfway house for a year, and I, and I pushed carts at a, you know, shopping carts at a grocery store. But very quickly, I, I became content with myself. Um, I just, like became able to breathe again and just comfortable in my own skin and then very quickly um like life just you know once I'm clean and sober and I'm doing the right thing life just opened up up for me well what do you do these days to get a high then sure sure and I you know I that's definitely you know, I definitely kind of chase still chase that that high in my life um you know, for me, I, I hope today it's in a little more positive way um you know for me it's it's pursuing my my um my uh my profession um i i work in in mental health i'm i'm actually a substance abuse counselor myself and mm -hmm. you know and that's my my goal you know my goal to keep pursuing that um you know for me i i also i i have great friends i pursue my relationships and, and just spending time with my friends and family um and then you know my hobbies i i, I love scuba diving um i've gotten really into the this past year um i love to travel going going to italy in a couple of weeks so everything you lost out 
on the last five, six years, you're trying to recreate that. Yeah. And, and the cool thing with the recovery, it comes back tenfold. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't have a choice when I was using as to, you know, what to do in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, drugs, drugs and alcohol decided that for me. And um, it's a really cool trip for me to be clean and sober and, and, and um, you know, be able to choose and determine how I want to live my life today. Well, John, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Absolutely. Wishing you good health, lots of wealth, and all the best that life can give to you, my friend. Yeah, you as well, Vip. On that note, God bless you. You too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. A special shout-out of thanks goes to my two colleagues, William Sanchez and Rick Buser, for producing this show. I'm very grateful to Robin Piper and Joan Brown from the Turning Point of Tampa for their invaluable input. Ladies, this show would not have been possible without you. And if you guys and gals out there have a story to share with the rest of the world on an anonymous basis, please contact us via Facebook and Twitter. For more fascinating stories, log on to foxnewsradio.com and click on to the VIP Jaswell Report. Follow me on Twitter at VIP Jaswell and my Facebook page for more great stories from great people. And keep your ears open for the next airing of the report coming soon.